a, a wonderful, wonderful lady, uh, and she uh, loves my children so well, and, and she just, uh, she's so generous to them, uh, loves on them, is uh, just very affectionate with them, does things with them, very active, and I just love the fact that my mom uh, loves my kids. Now, what's interesting is that my, sometimes my kids will say some stuff that's just ridiculous, uh, and they'll say stuff that's out of place, and uh, sometimes just... Um, maybe it's just bad. Like, it's just not very, very good. Uh, and my mom uh, puts up with it. And she just kind of like, just disregards it, uh, doesn't worry about it, kind of tries to distract and move forward. And when she does that, I often want to ask the question, who are you and what have you done with my mom? Um, because that's not exactly the way that it was when I was growing up. My mom, when I was growing up, was a very intense uh, individual. I mean, she was uh, very uh, goal-oriented. I mean, take no prisoners. She was a no-mercy kind of mom. I mean, I mean I'm, I, I don't think that I have ever won a board game against my mother. Like, still, to this day. I, I can't even play Candyland with my kids because I've never won. I don't even know what that would be like. Because, uh, I mean, she was just, that was the way she was. There's not a whole lot of mercy in her life. And, and so she had a very straightforward way of talking to me. Now she's, I mean, again, she's a pleasant, godly, wonderful woman who I uh, adore. And she's got some great wisdom for me. Uh, but sometimes she is a very straight shooter. And my, my brother and my sister, we kind of uh, chide with her a little bit about this because she is just a very straightforward, kind of intense uh, woman. And uh, I remember when I was getting ready to go off to college, I had been accepted to this school in Alabama, and I was packing everything up, getting ready to go. And uh, I remember it was just a few days, maybe a week before we were to leave to go and take me to school in Alabama. And she just stops me and she looks me right in the eye and she just says, says Charlie, uh, what is your plan B? And I said, plan B? And she said, well, when you fail out, what is your plan B? Um, Now, that is a legit question. Um, for me, because I was not exactly the best student in the world. I was like a, I was a B, C student. I got A's and PE and lunch. And, uh, and um, I just wasn't the best student in the world. And she's looking at reality of, of what my past successes were. And she's looking towards the future. And she's thinking, okay, what are you really going to do with your life? And so she was asking me what, what my plan B was. And I told her I really didn't have a plan B. This is it. Uh, and uh, <laughs> she's like, well, okay, we'll see how that goes. And, um, and, and, and that question right there gave me some drive. I mean, it gave me it was a gift to me, really, and I thank her for it to this day. I mean, it gave me the, the drive to, to pursue the success that I needed. Uh, I had to, at that moment, figure out that I had to apply myself. I had to set goals. Uh, I had to make plans for the future, uh, for my security, my wealth, my career. I mean, it was at that moment that I had to figure out how to lay the cornerstone for my personal kingdom. How is this going to go? How is I going to succeed in the world? You see, to her and to me at the time and to many of us, the value of my life was how well I succeeded in the world. How well I did with my career, uh, with how well I did with family goals, all of those things. And I don't think that we're alone in this. I think all of us inherently know this. Uh, We all strive for some form uh, of success. And we go to great lengths to make sure that our careers and, and are built and our fortunes are built. And most of the time, our life, especially as Americans, our life does not revolve around survival. It revolves around success. 
personal success, around abundance, and around influence. And I, I mean, I remember, you guys have all seen those inspirational posters uh, that have these, you know, glorious pictures of, and it has a little saying at the bottom said by someone who is really smart, and they're probably in your office somewhere. I remember one very specific one that hung in my dad's office, had this guy with a mountain climber, and it said very big letters, if it is to be, it is up to me. And I just remember looking at a poster and thinking, okay, that, that's kind of the picture of success, that we have to drive towards some kind of goal, some kind of preferred future. That's what success is. Now, most of us are driven that way. We definitely want to see that kind of success. And if we've gotten to the point in our life where maybe our goals and our dreams haven't exactly been what I, we thought that they were going to be, maybe they, uh, they really haven't come true and you've kind of come to the realization that they're probably not going to come true, I'm not going to be a professional baseball player. That's just reality. It's not, it's not going to happen. I have to live with that reality. Now, now, most of us, if our goals and our dreams are not realized by a certain age, sometimes we say, okay, well, my kids are then going to realize these goals for me. And so we begin to kind of set up environments so that my kids can have a better chance at achieving worldly, worldly success than I did. I mean, so, I mean, really, what's greater than um, a great kingdom for myself? The only thing greater than a great kingdom for myself is a grander kingdom for my kids. So therefore, I, I try to prop them up. I try to make every opportunity for them to gain success in the world. It's, it's a really important thing. So here's how I'm going to put this down. So if you're writing notes, here it is. Here's how I think the world defines success. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, self-fulfilled gratification uh, there we go. Here, okay, self-fulfilled gratification in building our personal kingdom. Self-fulfilled gratification in building our own personal kingdoms. Now here, let me break down that definition just a little bit. Okay, self-fulfilled, which means I did it myself. Self-fulfilled, I did it myself. This is something that I have built. Gratification, we do things that make us feel good. What is enjoyable for us, and it's completely subjective. My kingdom is going to be different than your kingdom because it's what I enjoy. Gratification. Building, it took effort. It wasn't just given to us. This is something self-fulfilled, something that I feel good about, and it's something that I did. It took a little bit of effort. Personal, it's mine. No one gets credit for my kingdom. This is what I have built. It's built subjectively on what I want. And then kingdom, a fortified world full of my accomplishments. Everything is protected. Everything is built. There's walls around my kingdom to make sure that no one or no thing or no circumstance can take it away from me. That's what I believe worldly success looks like. Now, here, here it is. I'm going to dispel the, the myth pretty quickly. If you've been around the Church of Cane Bay at any point in time, you probably realize that I'm building something to basically take it apart. Uh, and so we don't believe that this is a very good uh, worldview for your personal success. I mean, obviously, we don't think that this, this works. Um, I don't think that this definition of success matches with what we believe about the gospel. Now, at the Church of Cane Bay, we believe that we have one central core value, and that is the gospel. There's nothing else that's more important than that. And so we believe that if the gospel ever disappears from the Church of Cane Bay, if our preaching, if our preaching does not relate or talk about the gospel, then we cease to exist as a church. And then we're just a service organization that likes to get, they gather weekly for, to sing a little bit. All right, So that's, that's 
the purpose of our church is to proclaim this gospel message. Now, if you're new, let me explain to you that, what that means. We believe that God created everything. Everything that you see, the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, the planets, everything. God created every molecule in your, in your being. The very fact that you think and you move and you have life is the fact that you are created by an almighty God. He is the creator of all things, and so therefore he owns everything. And so God created man in his own own image to have a personal relationship with man, Adam and Eve in the garden. So we're talking through the story of the garden. Now, a long, long time ago, God set up one simple rule. It says, please do not do this. Obey me in this specific commandment. And, And Adam and Eve couldn't follow that. So they broke that commandment and they were disobedient to God, which broke relationship with him. And then it began to break the world apart. They, were, they went from being completely unashamed to very ashamed and guilty. And we've seen this in our world all over the place, that sin has broken every piece of our world. It's broken our relationships with each other. It's, it's, it's hurt the world outside and nature. Everything is affected by what we call sin. Now, there has to be a remedy for that. There has, to be some kind of, there has to be some kind of thing that comes along and fixes all of that. And God promised that fix. He said, someone is going to come along and, and basically heal that relationship. And that person is Jesus Christ, his very own son, who loved the world so much that he gave his life for the world. So instead of us paying for our sin, Jesus paid for our sin in our place on the cross so that we wouldn't have to. He was our substitute, and then he allowed us to be back into relationship with him. Now, after that relationship is, is, is mended and fixed forever, we then have this idea of glory. So we have, we have creation, then we have fall, I mean the sin part, restoration, which is what Jesus did for us, and then glory, what happens at the end, meaning that we are not going to be a part of our own kingdom, but we're going to be a part of God's grand, bigger, much better kingdom and, and live with him for all of eternity. That's what heaven is. So that's what the gospel is. We want to make sure that we proclaim that message. Now, here's the deal. The gospel tells us that God owns everything, and we simply steward what he has given to us. The gospel tells us that we are broken and unable to fix, any, and able to fix anything outside of God's grace. And the gospel tells us that our future is not anything that we build but our future is one that we live with God for all of eternity in his kingdom. And that's way better. So in comparison to this idea, though, of a self-fulfilled gratification or building our own kingdom, the gospel blows all of that apart. So in short, the worldly success doesn't fit with that picture. It doesn't fit with the gospel. So what does success look like? For you, what does success look like? How do we figure out, how do we fit success? Because I'm not saying that success is a bad thing. How do we fit success into the gospel? How does that work? How should we aspire to do anything? So if, if you've got a Bible, Genesis chapter 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, it's at the very beginning, first couple pages, Genesis chapter 11. And I'm going to share a story called the Tower of Babel. Uh, and it's, it's going to basically show us what not to do. Sometimes the best way to see truth is to see its contrast, okay? To see what not to do first. That's what we're going to look at, okay? So Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 1 through 9, okay? If you are there, say, I'm there. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay, read along with me. It says this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, 
come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and uh, bitumen for mortar. Uh, Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they purpose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Okay, here we go. So, uh, kind of fun story from this scripture. Uh, does ex- we're talking about this idea of worldly success. This is exactly what we don't want to do. I'm going to point out a few truths from this, okay? So, the number one thing to realize about this passage is that they are immediately, almost right off the bat, disobeying God, a direct commandment they had, they had been given. Now, it's not given in this passage that we just read, so let me give it to you. He says it twice. And the commandment is, make sure that you spread out that you are fruitful and you multiply, okay? It's found in Genesis chapter 1. God says it to Adam and Eve, all right? He says, be fruitful and multiply. And then again, he says it to Noah and his sons. He says it in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. It says, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. A very direct commandment. Do not stay in one place, keep on spreading, keep on having babies, go all over the place and completely steward the earth. Remember that whole thing about how God owns everything and we simply steward? So basically what he's saying is, I have created this huge paradise called the earth and I want you to subdue it. I want you to dominate over it. Okay, that is your job. You are a manager of what I own. So this is a direct commandment that's not only given once in Genesis 1, but it's again given to Genesis, in Genesis 9 to Noah and his sons. Now, this is not long after this. I mean, Genesis 9 comes very quickly after Genesis 11. So we're not talking about a huge amount of time here. This is right after a few generations, just right after uh, the flood and, uh, and then uh, God saving his people and, being, and giving a remnant so that they can then be fruitful and multiply once again. So let's walk through this a couple verses at a time so we can understand what's happening in this story, okay? So first of all, in verse 4, they said, hey, let's settle here. Let's stop filling the earth. Let's stop and let's stay all in one place. So that's their first problem is that they're immediately disobeying God. God said, be fruitful, be fruitful and multiply, fill the whole earth. So immediately in Genesis chapter 11, they're like, nope, let's stay right here. Let's not multiply. Let's stay all in one place. We want to be all together and we all want to speak one language. Okay. And so and then they say in verse four also that we want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be prideful and make a name for ourselves. We're going to come back to both of those things. In verse Verse 5, this is so much fun because the writer of Genesis has a little fun and kind of insults the people of of Babel. And it says in verse 5 that God has to stoop down to see what the people were doing. Now, their goal was to build a tower so high that it goes up into the heavens. And then it says in verse 5, God had to literally come down out of heaven to even see what they were doing. God is huge and significantly bigger than what they thought. 
And they thought that they can build a petty little tower to be as big as God is. And it says that God had to stoop down to see. Now, obviously, we know that God sees all things great or small. I think the biblical writer was just kind of poking fun or joking with the builders at this time. So, verse 6, uh, God is in a little bit of disbelief. That's kind of an interesting verse. It's hard to, dis- it's hard to parse out the Hebrew here. Um, but basically what he's saying is, um, nothing is impossible for them. He doesn't really mean p- impossible. It really means it's kind of like a father who comes along and says, I can't believe you're doing what you're doing. Like looking at your children and saying, I can't believe that you've gone this far in disobedience. What, what's, what can stop you? There's nothing you, that you haven't done. I can't believe that you've done this. I mean, some of us parents have realized that with our kids. Like, I can't believe that you've sinned this far and gone this far into darkness. It's hard for me to even believe. So basically that's what verse 6 is 7 is saying. And then in verse 7, it kind of it says what the, what the punishment is going to be. Now, what we see here is that God doesn't crush them. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't drown, him, doesn't drown them like he did with the flood. He simply takes away the two things that they wanted the most. They wanted to build up this city, and they wanted a great name for themselves. So God, in confusing their language, takes away both of them very quickly. If he says to all of them, I'm going to give you a new language, it doesn't allow them to communicate with one another, so they have to stop building the city. And they get in arguments about communication and all sorts of stuff, and they begin to to spread out all over again like they were supposed to. And if they can't communicate with one another, they can't tell each other what kind of great name they have. So he he immediately humiliates them and says, you can't have a great name if you can't speak that name. So he takes those things away from them quickly. Now to the Babylonians, here it is, worldly success meant two very important things, okay? Taking notes here or there. They, They wanted to accumulate. They wanted to accumulate. They wanted power and wealth and influence and acclaim. Their success was based upon how big of a silo they can create, put everything that they own inside of one tower, how tall their tower can be, how big their house can be, how luxurious their life can be, all the while they're disobeying what God called them to do in the first place. They knew this commandment. It wasn't very far away from them. They were supposed to be spreading. They were supposed to be multiplying. They were supposed to be subduing the earth, but instead they stopped. They just stopped and they said, you know, I'm not going to do what God calls me to do. I'm going to build my own kingdom. So first they wanted to accumulate things. Secondly, they wanted to make a great name for themselves. They wanted their name and their acclaim to be pronounced all over the world. They wanted people to come to that city and say, wow, look at that tower. Look at this city. It's amazing. You guys must be great, right? They wanted their name to be well known. But it's very clear from the rest of Scripture, and we're going to look at a couple of Scriptures here on, on the screen I want you guys to see, that obviously that's not where God wants us to be. Deuteronomy 32.3 says this, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. Psalm 92.1 says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. Psalm 99.3 says this, Let them praise your great and awesome name, for holy is he. God is not going to share his glory with anyone. He, he, he needs to keep it because he is great and holy and good. And there is no other name. There's no one who is equal to God. Only God's name is great, not ours. So they, they wanted accumulation. They wanted to take all this stuff. And then they also needed to make their name great. 5,000 years later, it's not much different now. 
I still think that we struggle with the same exact things. I I think that we still value the success of those two things. We want as much stuff as we can possibly accumulate as a people we wanted to make, and we want to make a great name for ourselves, and we need to protect it by building a city or walls around our wealth. We want to protect what we have and protect our accumulation. Now, back to our definition real quick. Here's the deal. The whole idea of self-fulfilled gratification. So I think the first half of our lives, maybe, I don't know, our you know, teens, 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s, I think the first half of our life is spent with this self-fulfilled gratification. It's spent trying to figure out how much stuff we can accumulate. That's the first half of our life. Now, building our own personal kingdom, I think, is the second half of our life. Where we say, okay, I've accumulated all of these things. I've accumulated wealth and some kind of influence. And now it's my job to build a wall around that and protect it so that no one or no thing or no circumstance could take that away from me. And so... The picture here is a complete departure from Scripture. What we see when we read the Bible is nothing like this. This is a sad story of a people who are disobeying God. And so we have to look at it with our kind of gospel goggles on or our gospel lenses on for our own worldview. And we look at Jesus and we say, okay, Jesus, how does this picture of worldly success jive with what you're teaching? So I've got just a few verses that I want to share with you real quick about what Jesus has to say about worldly success. In Luke 6, 22, this will be up on the screen. In Luke 6, 22 through 23, it says this. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. I want to make a great name for myself. That's what I want to do. I want people to know me. I want to have influence. And Jesus comes along and says, blessed is the people who, when, when that people are hated by them. Or, I'm sorry, that people hate them. That their name is spurned as evil. That's what Jesus says about your name. Matthew 9, 35 says this. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. It is not really the goal of our life, the goal of our success, to be a slave and a servant. We want to be the master. We want to be the owner. We want to be the one in charge. And Jesus says, Nope. If you want to be first, you'd be last. It's a completely different dichotomy. It's a different world. Luke 9, 23 says this, And he said to all, If anyone would would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. Basically, pick up your execution stick and follow me. Pick up this device that is supposed to kill you and follow after me. You know, this peaceful death, this idea that we'll live to a ripe old age and, and, and just have everything that we could possibly need and everything works out and we kind of die in our sleep. Jesus says, pick up your execution stick and follow after me. That's a tougher idea. That's really hard for us to kind of swallow and while we compare ourselves to worldly success. It's tough. So what we see in Scripture is obedience. It's not bad. It's not sad drudgery. It's joy-filled obedience. It's, It's not finding your blessing. It's not finding it in stuff and accumulation. And it's not building a personal kingdom. So if you're taking notes, here it is. This is what I think gospel success is. 
Gospel success is a joy-filled obedience in the blessing of God's kingdom. It's a joy-filled obedience in the blessing of God's kingdom. We don't build anything. We just enjoy what God has already given to us, that we take joy in the fact that he has given to us commandments, and if we obey him, things will go well for us. And we get to live in the blessing of God's kingdom, not our kingdom. So if we're going to live in a joy-filled obedience and the blessing of God's kingdom, that's a big, long statement. What the heck does that mean? How do I work that out practically? You might look and say, hey, I do want that gospel success because I'm struggling through, okay, I've been looking at this worldly success my whole life and I can see how I should not be acting that way or should not be pursuing that. And you're telling me that I need to pursue gospel success. How do I do that? And that's a good question. So we're going to talk the rest of the time, just for a few more minutes, about what it looks like to follow gospel success. Okay? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. ready. Sweet. Awesome. Uh, So here it is. We, at the Church of Cain Bay, we have this understanding of what a disciple is. Jesus says, I want to make you a disciple. Now, that's a big churchy word for follower of Jesus. Okay? Disciple equals follower of Jesus. Now, we've defined at the Church of Cain Bay what a disciple is. A disciple is one who is growing in their relationship with Christ, who is giving of their relationship with with Christ, and going for the gospel of Christ, okay? Growing, giving, going. Growing means that we're in prayer, that we're in scripture study, that we're in accountable relationship with one another. Giving means that we give of our time and our talent and our treasure so that the kingdom can can, can advance, all those things. And then going means that we go personally, that we take the gospel personally, that we take the gospel locally within a local church, and that we take the gospel globally. We take it to people of every name, every nation, every language, every tongue, everything. Okay? And we take the gospel to the very reaches of the earth. That's where we want to go with the gospel. Okay? Now, what I think is, is the people of the Tower of Babel, they struggled with this idea of go. Because God commanded them to go and subdue and subject the earth and hold dominion over the earth to be fruitful and multiply. And they decided, you know what? We're not going to go. We're going to stay. We're going to stay right here. We're going to stay our own people group. We don't want to spread out. We don't want to multiply. We just want to be right here within the walls of our own personal kingdom. And we don't have any interest in going like you've commanded us to, to go. So I want to take this in the idea of personal, local, global. How do we deal with this personally? What does it look like for us to have personal, godly success? Here's some questions that I want you to think through, and this is the heart of what I want you to think through. If you're taking notes, this is really important. Maybe you just need to think about these things in your mind. Here it is. Here's some questions. What is the purpose of my career? What is the purpose of my career? What is the purpose of my influence? meaning your leadership, your ability to have a name for yourself. What is the purpose of my acclaim? What is the purpose of my reputation? And finally, what is the purpose of my wealth? What is the purpose of my wealth? We have to ask ourselves these questions, and this will determine for us, are we seeking worldly success, or are we seeking gospel-centered success? These questions are really hard to think through because it gets us at our core. Because we have been taught all, all of our life, it is, if it is to be, it is up to me, right? That you need to be successful, that you need to accumulate as many things as you possibly can before you die. And you need to protect that investment. 
So we have to ask all these questions. What's the purpose of all those things? What's the purpose of my wealth? What's the purpose of my career? What's the purpose of my influence? You see, when we shove it through the lens of the gospel, we have to think not necessarily about um, what's best for me, but what's best for the kingdom of God. You see, thankfully, I mean, the people of Babel, their job was to be fruitful and multiply. I, I think that we as human beings have done a pretty good job of that. I mean, human beings are, are now all over the world, and we've spread and multiplied everywhere. So I don't really think that that particular commandment applies to us, but I do think that the application of accumulation applies to us. Should we be just accumulating a ton of things so that it would be just for ourselves? Are we planning our careers thinking of only ourselves? Are we planning, are we using our influence to promote ourselves and our family? And are we spending our wealth for our own gratification? That's the hardest one. Are we spending our wealth for our own gratification and building our own kingdom? You see, worldly success, I think this will be up on the screen, worldly success leads us to accumulation. And gospel success leads us to generosity. Generous in all sorts of ways. And I'm not just talking about giving to the church, although that's one facet of it. I think that the idea of being just a generous person. I had lunch with this guy the other day. His name was Adam. He's one of my just best friends in the world. And I just, I just know him. And one of the ways that I love to describe him is that he's just a very generous person. And he's never in his life given money to me. He's never in his life given money to our church ever. But I just know him to be a generous person. And I describe him that way. He's generous with his words. He's generous with his time. He's generous with his encouragement. I can see that he's generous with his whole entire life. And I value that about him. Because I think that he's living this gospel-centered success. Where, he set, where he's, taken, he's, taken like, he's taken all of the picture of his entire life and saying, you know what? I'm going to be generous and not accumulate everything. I'm not going to take all the words for myself. I'm not going to take all the accolades for myself. I'm, I'm going to use my influence for the sake of the gospel and not to promote myself. Now, this is not to say, here's the deal. Uh, this is not to say that we shouldn't advance in our career. So don't hear me say that. And this is not to say that we should not gain wealth. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not to say that I don't want you to gain influence. I want to say this. You should do all you can to make as much as you can so that you can give all you can. Let me say it again. I think that you should do all you can to make as much as you can so that you can give all you can. I want you to desire things that you can then give away. That you don't have to build your own personal kingdom. See, the gospel doesn't oppose wealth. It just opposes hoarding it for ourselves. The gospel doesn't oppose influence. It just means what are you going to do with that influence when you get it? And the gospel doesn't oppose you sharing your story. It just basically says, is your story subject to God's story? In other words, is God's glory or God's story bigger and better than your story? Do you talk about God's glory in your life rather than talk about yourself all the time? It's a big question for us to ask. Now, a couple other things just on the personal level. Worldly success means protection. Worldly success means protection. It means that we never take risks. It means we need to protect everything that we've had, all this accumulation, all this wealth, all this influence. We have to protect it 
Because we don't want to say anything out of turn. We don't want to tell our we don't want to tell our neighbors that we believe in Jesus because that might change our relationship. That might give something away. We don't want to we don't want to give too generously, probably out of fear that we might lose everything and we might not have anything. What that means is that we don't trust God to provide everything that we need. So I think gospel success looks like this. It looks like rest. Because I think all of us are busy, 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 busy trying to build some type of kingdom for ourselves, build build a kingdom for our children, instead of just resting in the Lord and not doing anything but just resting in who God is. Just being. (laughs) Not a whole lot of doing, just being. Just resting in who God is. Worldly success is, I'm so busy. You know, just this side. Busyness is a failure. I'm just going to let you know. So the next time you say, I'm so busy, it means that you're failing. For some odd reason, our culture looks at busyness as a badge of honor. I'm so busy. Oh, well, congratulations. You're failing at time management. Like, think about that for a second. And the reason why we're busy is because we're trying to protect, we're trying to accumulate a ton of stuff, and then we're trying to protect it. The Bible says rest. Rest and trust in God. Trusting what God has for you, right? Trusting that he's going to provide for you and trusting that he's going to take care of everything for you. And that if things go wrong, if you lose all of your wealth, we have a much better promise for the future anyway. And so it really doesn't matter. In the grand scheme of things, this life is just but a miss compared to great eternity. So we have to think through that. All right, so let's look at uh, local success. So that was all personal success. Let's look at local godly success. And here's what I want to talk about the church real quick. And not just our church, but kind of the church in general, okay? Um, I think the church often fails uh, in this. It kind of falls into the same traps as the Babylonians do. If you're wondering, the great, the great country of Babylon that we see in the Bible, uh, Babylon came from the Tower of Babel. All right, so Babylon, right? There, there, there are people that, that still struggle with the same things in churches as they did back in, back in the day of Babel. And so here's the deal with a lot of churches. They, they say, hey, we're going to stop spreading and we're going to stop multiplying. That many churches, their goal is to see how many people you can fit into a building. How many seats can you fill? How many people can come to our church rather than multiplying disciples? And then you become, once you get all those people, it's about protecting them and insulating ourselves away from the dark world. Saying, how many people can we gather in one building and how many people can we keep away from the darkness of the world rather than doing what Jesus says, which is being the light of the world and bringing it into the darkness? We have to ask ourselves that question as a church. Are we insulating ourselves? Are we, not, are we multiplying ourselves? What's happening where? And it doesn't have to be this way. And I want to show you a really cool biblical connection. If you've got a Bible, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, turn all the way into the New Testament, Acts chapter 2. Okay? And, uh, and it's a really cool story because I think it connects perfectly uh, with, uh, with this story in Genesis 11. Okay? So Acts chapter 2 is immediately after Jesus' uh, death and then resurrection. He spent 40 days with his disciples, kind of teaching them and coaching them. And at the very end, he ascends into heaven and he gives them this commandment. Go, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He gives them that commandment. And he says, now go, go into all the world, go into ta ethne, every nation, 
Go everywhere, spread out, make sure that you hold dominion as a church all over the world. Sound familiar, right? Okay, so God calls them to do that. Now, here's the problem, is that there's about 120 people that make up kind of the first church in Jerusalem. Here's the problem. They all spoke the same language. They were all the same heritage. They were all the same kind of people, right? They're not different. They don't speak different languages, much like the people in Babel. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Remember? Okay, hearkening back. Genesis 11. Everybody, let's get together all in one place. And we see this again in Acts chapter 2. All together in one place. Verse 2, it says this. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are, the, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Meaning, aren't all of these people the same kind of people? Don't they all speak in the same language? Verse eight, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native, tongue, native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phyg- Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and this parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear, get this, verse 11, and we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. It's a beautiful story. It's almost like opposite of Babylon. It's where all these people were gathered, and they were following Jesus, they were being obedient, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing, and their goal was to go into every nation, They wanted to go into every nation. They wanted to spread. They wanted to multiply, but they couldn't speak the languages. And so God just gave it to them. So he gave them the ability to speak these languages, not for their own name, not for their own acclaim, not for their own influence, but for the mighty works of God. I think that churches that struggle to speak the language of the culture that they have no interest in piercing the darkness with the light of the gospel. I think that they fall prey to the same things that the Babylonians did. I think that, you know, you know God, after the flood, God decided to wipe out all, almost all of humanity with a flood. And then he promised, with, and he put a rainbow in the sky, and he said, I'm never again going to flood the earth. And then we have the story of Babel, where he comes down and he confuses the language of everybody. And there is no such promise that he will never do that again. There is no such promise. I think that sometimes for people who are not following the commandment, especially people who are in church, who are not following the commandment to take the gospel and spread out and multiply, I think that they struggle through the same things that the Babylonians did. That's why it's very possible that you can go into some churches and you have no idea what they're talking about. That all they want to do is gather people into one building and then make a great name for themselves. Now there's a caution here at the Church of Cane Bay, folks, because we are about to break ground on our own building, (laughs) our own tower, so to speak. I I want to be very clear about our intentions with the building because it has nothing to do with Babel. 
I want to be clear that the purpose of the building is so that we can be able to send more missionary disciples out into this community and this world than ever before. Our goal is not to be siloed up into one place where we can all kind of be gathered around in one building. That's not the goal. It's a launching pad for ministry. And also, we do not wish to make a great name for ourselves. And I really hope that on the first day that we're in that building, that all of us will get on our knees and proclaim the great name of God. And say, this isn't about us. This, this building is not about who we are. It's about God's great story. And I really want to see us do that as a church. Let's be careful that we don't fall into those same pits. All right, one final thing, and I think this is great. Okay, so we have personal, we have local, and we have global. I'm going to share with you how all of this comes together because it's beautiful, okay? Revelation chapter 5. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Otherwise, it'll be up on the screen. Revelation, the last book in the Bible. So we have the first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 11, 1 through, 1 through 9. And it's talking about this story about how they're not spreading out. They're not taking dominion over the, over the world, and they want to make their own name great. Here's the deal. Revelation chapter 5. This is at the end of time when all things are coming together in Jesus Christ, that all things are fulfilled in him. In Genesis, or I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 5, 9 and 10. I love this. It says this. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. This is Jesus. And for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Here it is. For every tribe and language and people and nation. In verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Our mandate as a church is to hold dominion over the earth as a church, to send missionary disciples through the whole world to every language and every tribe and every nation. And this takes a very unselfish, generous people that's willing to take risks. And this is the promise of Scripture, is that not only we are a kingdom of priests. Priests are people who give and who are a conduit for the gospel. People who share what God is and who he is and what he is doing in the world. And then we get, to, we get to help people to God. That's what a priest does. He helps people get to God. And so he says, you're going to reign over the earth. That can't happen if we're all siloed together in one place. We have to be able to spread out. We have to be able to multiply. And this is much better than our own personal kingdom. It's much, much better than our dreams or even the dreams of our kids. It's better than our goals because his ways are not our ways. It's a very different picture so we have a choice. Are we going to follow this kind of worldly success? Or are we going to follow gospel success? They are very different. They're antithetical in every single way. There's, there's nothing different about it. You know, my, my mom, back when she asked me that question, remember when she asked me, what is your plan B? Here's something that's very important. There is no plan B to the church. We are plan A through Z. We are God's only plan for the redemption of the world. And so we'd better take it seriously. we better take some risks, both personally, locally, globally. And so for you personally, here's just some questions that I want you to ask yourself this week moving forward. What's the purpose of my career? What's the purpose of my wealth? And if I have any, what's the purpose of my success? Ask yourself those questions this week and really ponder them and help. And my hope is that they will help shape you as Christ is molding you. Okay, let's pray together. Father, you're good in every way, and um, God, we, we come to a place now where we um, really just want to see you move and work in our church. Um, 
There's folks in this room who have, uh, especially, and, and me, I include myself in them, who have pursued worldly success our entire life. <laughs> We've always wanted to accumulate more and more stuff, better houses, better cars, better clothes, more money, more entertainment. Everything is about us, Father. We have to draw a line in the sand, Father, and say that we will not, we will not strive for that any longer. God, that with our gospel goggles on, that we will now see the world through your son Jesus and his grander, greater story for us. God, you have gifted us with the ability to take this gospel message to this community, specifically for this church, that every man, woman, and child would have multiple opportunities to hear, see, and respond to the gospel. Help us to be serious about that, Father. Help us to take risks with what we have. Help us to take risks with our career. We might break down the walls of protection that we're trying to protect ourselves and kind of wall ourselves in so that we can only have relationships with the people that we desire. God, help us to have relationships with people that you desire. And help us to give away our lives rather than try to accumulate more and more stuff. Father, we worship you. Uh, we're, we're, we're grateful that you have gifted us another day, another Sunday morning to gather together as a church to proclaim that you are much larger and you have a grander, greater story than our story and that your glory is to be praised and adored. And Father, that your glory would then go throughout the earth through your, through your servants. Father, we are your servants. We desire to be disciples in the world. Amen.